Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition Podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today, I'm really happy to have with us Dr. Bridie Keane. Bridie is a two-time Paralympic wheelchair basketball player from Australia. Highlighting the diversity of her athletic prowess, she also won a world championship in Paracanoo in 2016. Recently, Bridie completed her PhD at the University of the Southern Coast. Welcome to the podcast, Bridie. Thanks, Liz. It's so so nice to be here. Definitely a different setting to when we last caught up. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I'm not even going to say how long ago that was. (laughs) Doesn't feel that long ago. Let's just go with that. Time flies. So tell us a bit about your athletic career and your impairment first. Um, Yeah, so my athletic career, again, it also feels like it um, was just yesterday, but I actually finished up with the Australian women's wheelchair basketball team in 2015, so almost over six years ago. um, Wow. Yeah, that I stopped playing at the high performance level. I really, I, I started playing when I was um, introduced to the sport at the Sydney 2000 Paralympic Games and got to meet my hero, Liesl Tesh. Um, mm. She actually signed my prosthetic foot at the Sydney 2000 Games and, <laughs> and said, go home and start playing wheelchair basketball. So that's exactly what I did. And it was a, it was a pretty, pretty exciting pathway from there. I was able to play with the Victorian state team um, and learn from a lot of those amazing teammates. And then um, I got invited to a gliders squad camp, but it was really when I was, it was really when I finished my VCE. So I studied in Victoria. Um, I finished school and I, I was balancing university and basketball and it was a a lot and I wasn't doing either to the potential that I needed to. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I made the decision to go to the United States to college there my teammates Shelley Chaplin and Kathleen O'Kelly Kennedy were already paving the way for us um, in the college system. So, so I made the decision to to move over there and never looked back from that that moment. That was such a great decision in my Australian career because in the collegiate system, it was really set up to be able to balance university studies with mm. uh, a high performance career. So yeah. that was that was a really pivotal moment in my career and then when I graduated from the US I returned home to Australia um, for our London campaign which was definitely my favourite campaign leading to the London 2012 Paralympics where we won silver Mm -hmm. and um, yeah I spent the rest of my career I did a did a stint in Germany in the in the professional league there Mm -hmm. Um, and then I was really wanting to sort of come back to Australia and and um, sort of settle not set not settle down but I guess be you know, been in one place for a while. So I I moved to Brisbane and where I finished my career with the Australian women's team, um, where unfortunately we didn't qualify for the Rio Games. So it was it was a really good campaign, but the competition was just a lot harder and um, we were really devastated, but we yeah, we didn't we didn't qualify for Rio, which was going to be my last games. So oh, yeah. yeah, that's disappointing. And is that when you swapped over to, to paddling for a little while? Yeah, it was really it was beautiful actually because so at the university I work, University of the Sunshine Coast, uh, Dr. Gail Mays, she's a she's an Olymp- Olympian herself, and she she saw me the week I got back from um, Japan where we had where we had failed to qualify for Rio, and she saw me and she hugged me and she, we were both having a bit of a tear about it because she understood what what it 
really meant to, you know, qualify and go to the games. And then, you know, I was there to paddle and it was so, it was really therapeutic being out on the water. We'd go out on the ocean in Mooloolaba and it was just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And at the end of the session, she's like, okay, let's get you in a boat for the world's, the world sprints were happening the next year in Kiwana, so on Mm -hmm. the Sunshine Coast. And she was, she was just like, okay, let's sort of redirect. And, and it, it was great. It gave me purpose. It wasn't the same, like it definitely didn't replace the disappointment of bas- basketball. And, I, you know, I had moments where I'm like, I'm not, you know, I'm a basketballer trying to learn how to paddle. This is all wrong. Um, Slightly but, different pattern. Yeah, yeah. But it was just so good to be in the boat. And my mum and I paddled socially together. So it was just, I was just, as soon as I got back from that, tournament we didn't qualify I was like I've got to keep moving canoeing was one way to do it you know I kept going to the gym I was like I don't know what I'm doing next but I know that if I stop moving um the impact on my mental health is just going to be mm-hmm. even worse than the disappointment of not qualifying so I just kept kept moving and um happened to have this amazing opportunity to you know paddle the next year in in the world sprint so it was really it was really nice cool. great nice and so what's your impairment it's a, I'm, I'm an amputee the official, I think, name of my amputation is a bilateral partial foot or science amputee. So basically I had both my feet partially amputated um, as a result of meningococcal septicemia. Mm. So septicemia, I think it's now referred to as sepsis, um, but a, a, an infection occurring because of meningococcal, which I, uh, I caught meningococcal when I was two and a half years old in Melbourne and I was really fortunate to have the outcome that I did because back then I I don't think the survival rate or even the diagnosis was a lot harder. Not many doctors had had seen the rash before um, that we now, you know, sort of know to look for with meningococcal and um, it was just really lucky that my mum, you know, she was initially told that I had had the flu and and something didn't sit right with her so she just sort of persevered and and a doctor did end up looking in a medical encyclopedia because, of course, mm. that's, you know, what, what, <laughs> what there was available in 1989. And fortunately I was transferred to the Royal Children's Hospital where we spent, you know, a, a few months of my amputations and then I spent sort of many years going back and forth to the Royal Children's to have a lot of orthopaedic surgery as a result of, like, the scar tissue and uh, debridements that went with my amputations. So, yeah, I was really, really fortunate. Mm. And you wear a prosthetic limb on each side? Yeah, so I wear a prosthetic limb. Um, as a result of the meningococcal, I had my growth below my knees impacted. So mm. and, and quite quite a few surgeries to sort of, you know, break bones and reset things here mm. and there so that I Lovely. so that I would be functional, you know, once I'd fully grown and, and that really paid off. But as a result, I'm a lot shorter than I would have been. So I can wear a pro- I can can basically wear a setup like a double double amp- a below knee amputee um, and have a have an artificial foot on both sides that mm. I walk on and it's it's actually really functional and I sort of I sort of describe it as like reverse aging because as technology gets better in in prosthetics I'm finding that I can actually do things that I couldn't do as a teenager like I can now run and jump higher than I could as a teenager oh. because the technology is getting better so yeah, I think it's it's one of the um, in- amazing things about prosthetics and technology it's that it's actually just getting better and better as opposed to you know my my actual bones and muscles mm. maybe yeah. declining as I age so yeah <laughs> yeah and so what was your points classification for wheelchair basketball 
So my um, classification was a 4.0 out of, out of 4.5 um, as I was, the setup in my wheelchair was a below knee amputee. So I didn't yep. have a, a foot plate that I sort of leveraged off. So um, yeah, I played, I played, I'm pretty sure my whole career as a, as a 4.0. Can you tell us about how your nutrition focus changed over your career as an athlete? where that started at and where eventually you finished at the end of your career? Yeah, definitely. I think um, when I was, you know, my first introduction to sport, actually I, I, it was my first few years playing at that higher level where I have, I have celiac disease and it was, it went undiagnosed. I don't know when it, you know, developed, but I definitely think it was undiagnosed for about a year. And mm. I think it was playing high performance sport that really showed me that something was was wrong because I remember I would be like training at night and I would eat something and, and I was losing a lot of weight. And so my mum was like making me these giant rolls for lunch, um, oh, this no. huge, beautiful, this fresh bread she had to bake for because she was like, you know, wanting to make sure I had enough energy to, to play wheelchair basketball. And I was just exhausted and in pain um, I felt really nauseous and um, so I actually got tested for celiac disease because one of my teammates had it and she was describing the symptoms of it and the GP was unsure at first thinking like it's not really a common age for it to present I don't know if that's still the same same view on it but it, but I did get tested and, and it was confirmed and so that was my first insight into how you know food can make you feel really horrible or really good but mm. the one thing I really struggled with though was then converting to a gluten-free diet and then being an athlete um, and you know at school and then when I went to university it was the same it was really difficult to, to to have proper meals prepared because I just wasn't I, it just wasn't a priority it was like no I'll just get through the day off you know a, a coffee after training and maybe an empty stomach or a yogurt on the way to training like I was not fueling myself properly at all um during my time in the US when I look back at it and I remember going into lifting sessions and I just really didn't enjoy them and and I think it's just because I hadn't eaten enough throughout the day and then when we did have time of course we're having like you know substantial dinners and eating food mm. at night when we didn't actually have to train afterwards so it was it was it wasn't a great um, balance I think I was I think I was feeling myself of way too much sugar and coffee I just didn't know what it felt like to be properly nourished. So when I came back to Australia, I also reduced my training. Like we trained really intensely. So from a body composition point of view, like we're quite well fit and we were, you know, burning everything that we did did consume. Mm-hmm. But coming back to Australia, the training was a lot more technical than, than vigorous. And so I, <laughs> my diet was just like it was it was leading to a bit of weight fluctuation depending on you know the training versus nutrition and so it was really time I think it was leading into the London campaign where I went okay let's really like it, it wasn't working for the load I think yeah. we were working together on a tournament Liz and and really mm-hmm. nutted out or oh it sticks with me that you sort of went oh base you know ensure that you're getting a cup and a half of veggies or salad I think it was at each meal and it was just like, oh, I'm not, I don't have time to do that. And then it was like, well, what if I make time to do that? And will this make a difference to sort of my energy levels and, you know, combined with other balanced meals? And it really made a difference to lifting in particular. Like I just, mm. 
I just noticed a big difference. And then it was my last campaign. So the one we actually didn't qualify, but I worked really closely with the dietitian, Gary Slater. And I said to him, I, I, I had worked with an exercise scientist who, who said to me that I could gain two to five kilos of, of lean muscle. And I was like, no, nah, that's not possible. And anyway, so I told, I worked with Gary on this and it, it worked. Like we had a really, you know, pretty strict, not strict, but a very structured set out. But I just learned so much about energy through that process. And even now retiring, like I know, you know, I, I don't have a meal without protein anymore. Like just, yep. you know, I have like my protein throughout the day and I just noticed having a you know <laughs> busy toddler like mm. every day that I eat properly I feel better than the days where I'm going oh, I don't have time so it's yeah it's definitely changed as I matured in my career and it definitely paid off and I think I did I think we did reach that goal of it was maybe two kilos of lean muscle that I gained I don't think I got to five but I could see I could really see the payoff so it was, it was great. That's a really interesting pathway. Do you find it's easier now to follow a gluten-free diet because there's more options available or do you think that actually the amount of options and the range and variety makes it more confusing? Um, Yes and no. Like I think the education component was really helpful because I think the challenge with there being more options is they're not always – like I go, oh, wow, that's so good that they've got gluten-free Tim Tams and then I think, well, did I, you know, was I really missing out? I'm, I'm a big, <laughs> do I, I'm, I'm an I absolute, <laughs> yeah, do I need, do I need those? I'm an absolute like chocolate addict. And even when working with Gary, I remember converting from, oh, like I, I really like dark chocolate as well. And we're looking at like dark chocolate's quite low sugar and high, high fat. So it was like, oh, this actually works, you know, in, into the daily plan. Um, So even swaps like that were quite, quite helpful. But I think it, I think it's great, but it's also yes. Yeah, still, when you when you actually take away take away gluten and have it, it's you can have a complete diet without gluten free products. So I, mm-hmm. I try to just keep that in mind. That and and I really don't like all the substitutes. I, I was never a really big fan of bread and pasta because they, I associated them with feeling sick when mm-hmm. I when I had undiagnosed. Mm-hmm. So I I tend to go for the gluten free natural options a lot of the time but it does it is nice that there are more options out there mm-hmm. do you remember much about the process of your diagnosis did you get a blood test first and then a gut biopsy or what was yeah. the process that they went through for you yeah so i had a blood test um and then was referred to a gastroenterologist who did who did an endoscopy and colonoscopy like to uh, mm-hmm. a complete sort of look at how things were going and at the time, my iron was so low that um, at the same time I had the uh, colonoscopy and endoscopy, they gave me an iron infusion because I was so depleted across all my nutrients. And that was the switch for me. It was it was like I could not even stay awake at night compared yeah. to having my energy back. I think that showed me just how ill I was feeling every day without yeah. realising because realizing, it was probably a yeah. gradual decline. Yeah, I was actually going to ask you about that because iron levels are one of the things that tends to suffer when uh, celiac disease is, is undiagnosed. And at, for an athlete, you can really notice that. Yeah. If your iron levels aren't high enough. Yeah, def- definitely. And I think it made me, I think that's also like it, there's always a challenge. And I definitely had this challenge as a female in the sport where. You've got to wait, like you're having 
um, skin folds or there's focus on your new nutrition and learning about what fuels your body like that was a shift for me from thinking oh we shouldn't eat too much like mm. I think that there's that it's like I and now I um you know I train I, I train in the gym and I know that I need to eat like I eat a lot but it's it's that eating the right foods make you feel good like I think I've really worked on that sort of um you know not fearing junk food and and wanting to only eat healthy food to to sort of look a certain way I'm like if I feel myself I can exercise you know that I feel good I can get through my day so um there was that learning that process I think through the diagnosis of celiac disease because basically I lost I lost 10 kilos Mm. um and then that weight all came back on really quickly once I was on a gluten-free diet so that 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 was definitely something that threw me out I was like oh well, I had lost too much weight, but then I gained, you know, I gained it all back so quickly. I was like, oh, where's the, what, you know, what's the healthy version Where am I meant to be? Yeah. 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 Do you have any family history of celiac disease? Well, we do now. So my auntie has it, but she actually was diagnosed after me. So I was the first, first one diagnosed with it. Um, But we think that it definitely runs through, through my dad's side. Yeah. So, and, and we think that there were probably family members from sort of older generations that had it. They had, I think they had some gastrointestinal cancers and we wonder if, mm. you know, it was sort of linked been without there being a diagnosis. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. When I was studying dietetics back in the 80s, we were taught that you'd diagnose celiac disease in young children and they'd look like they were malnourished and there was never any real discussion about people being diagnosed later in life and I guess now do you find that people are restricting their gluten intake because they feel like they may get symptoms but when it comes to the diagnosis you actually the gold standard is the gut biopsy and you have to be consuming gluten before you actually have that biopsy otherwise you may get a false negative diagnosis what was your diagnosis process like? Yeah, it's hard. And I think I was diagnosed like now, I'm, I'm trying to think how many years ago. It must have been 16 years ago, actually. Oh, no, even more. I'm older than that. 18 years ago. It wasn't something that people generally followed without the diagnosis then. I don't think it was common. So I didn't have that. Luckily, I didn't even have that option because I do remember even the week that that I was having the endoscopy I, and we thought it was gluten, it was really hard to stomach gluten but the doctor did say that I needed to stay on a oh, gluten diet yeah. um yeah. and it was like look I remember looking at a bottle of pasta thinking this is going to make me feel awful and it's a, <laughs> it's a hard thing to do so it's it is a challenge isn't it yeah for sure do you feel like evidence-based sports nutrition information is easy fine for para-athletes now you know compared to when you first started as an athlete um, I wouldn't. I, I would say so, based on like obviously I'm not an athlete anymore, but based on, on my partner still competing, and I think yeah, I, th- I think it's much more readily available. When I started, I think then it was London 2012. I remember Liz that you had the gluten free section of the food set up, but I I don't remember that how how I navigated it in Beijing, the food hall. I think I actually stuck to really safe foods that I knew were gluten free. And then as a result, probably didn't have a very balanced diet there. Like I was probably eating the same thing. And I did find a lot on tours where we didn't have that, the support. It, you know, you might be in a country where 
like most tournaments are super accommodating, but sometimes it was just easier than every day going into the food hall. What's gluten free? It's like, oh yeah, there's some rice. I've brought my tuna. There's steamed veggies and just you know playing it playing it safe because it it's tricky on tour when you don't have control about what you're eating. Whereas I think that even now you go into many more countries have options like I remember we went into European countries and living in Germany they have such a great gluten-free range so I think information and access would be a lot better for high performance athletes now yeah it's definitely a bit of a challenge there are some places that I think around the world still think that feeding an athlete means putting a plate of pasta in front of them which isn't always the best approach can you tell us a little bit more about your PhD and what that was focused on yeah, I started my PhD when I was still an athlete and um, it, it was great because I ended up, so I, was, so I was doing it at USC, so the University of the Sunshine Coast, and then I was training as an athlete out of Queensland Academy of Sport and Queensland Academy of Sport have, or then it was called the Centre of Excellence for Applied Sports Science Research. So they actually had PhD scholarships funded through their centre. Um, so I worked closely with, uh, it was Jeff Greenhill, was the manager there and Professor Alan Hahn, who, oh, yeah. who has spent a lot of time, I think he was the chief scientist at the AIS for many years, and they were really supportive of the, the perspective I wanted to take on my research, which was not sports science, but it was looking at how we can support para-athletes using more of an ecological perspective that we use in public health, so looking at sort of the system surrounding para-athletes. And really that idea came from my own experience of living in different different countries and thinking there are such simple but important things that either enable us to play our sport or create barriers and mm. they're, they're different in Paralympic sport. And if we can identify some of those, then I think we can, you know, help help athletes to reach that level by addressing some of these barriers and then turning them into facilitators. Mm-hmm. So that so that was sort of the idea behind it. And then it became, as PhDs do, it narrowed in focus to look at, so initially it looked at wheelchair basketball and then it looked at the, the university as the context, so looking at how we can actually support para-athletes who are studying in universities to, to balance both of those demands. So that was then the, the, sort of the research question that I had and I spent many years thinking about that. Yeah, well, and you've experienced two different sporting systems, I guess, in terms of the US and and university systems related to sport in the US and Australia. So you've had a, a good perspective. What are some of the key barriers and, and how can we reduce those barriers? Yeah, so it was most specifically in wheelchair basketball. It was interesting because I looked at the barriers and facilitators to when those who had become elite started the sport and one one thing that was interesting was that I think it was I can't remember the percentage of athletes who said this but it was the majority of athletes had actually been introduced to the sport by another athlete and that might have been like in a clinical setting you know like a rehab setting Mm -hmm. or um, like they'd come you know they'd they'd seen it uh, in Melbourne there was a lot of wheelchair basketball played in a rehab centre and then you know an athlete an existing athlete would speak to this person and and recruit them to play and it was really interesting because I think that's very different to 
um, Olympic sporting pathways where kids are exposed to sports from such a young age in schools. And it shows how in para-sport that relationship between, you know, someone you meet who might have had a similar experience to you and then convinces you to come and play the sport and then those people go on to play at that high level is, is really cool. Mm. And um, same, same thing at the, for these athletes who did, you know, start the sport, they really needed access to a wheelchair. So no one really starts wheelchair basketball with a state-of-the-art piece of equipment ready to play the game. So it highlighted the importance of programs actually having you know, wheelchairs that people can loan or, or, again, teammates lending their wheelchairs to a brand-new player. So you might have a Paralympic athlete lending a wheelchair to this brand-new player so that they can actually even begin to play the sport. And I think that was interesting because it showed that if we don't have access to equipment in these grassroots venues then these players may never have even played the sport and then they've, mm. they've gone on to make those national teams interestingly at the high level the the equipment just it stayed a really important piece but for some athletes it was a barrier if they didn't have access to the funding required or they you know had the financial means to buy new chairs all the time because you mm. know once you get to that elite level you need to replace them um, more regularly but then for those that did, they were saying how the technology kept changing to make them, you know, even faster and stronger. So those who do have the means to get the, the, the equipment have a higher chance of, of being able to continue and do really well in the sport. So yeah, there was because a, those pieces of equipment aren't cheap, are they? And yeah. especially as they become more technical, technologically advanced. Absolutely. And, and the, as they become more technologically advanced, they naturally become more expensive. So mm. it's... It's a really interesting, I think, position for Paralympic sport to think about, like, well, how do we get sponsors or support for athletes to continue to have the equipment they need to be able to perform their, their best? Another really interesting one was accessibility of venues. And it, I think you would imagine that for high-performance para-athletes, so those on the Australian women's and men's wheelchair basketball teams, they would have access to regular courts that have, you know, no barriers and that was not the case. So many athletes were were finding it really hard to have regular venues to train at, which is just so basic yeah. <laughs> as a, yeah. an athlete. You need to do your sport. You need someone to train. So they were not. They were probably not surprising findings to me. But I think going through the research process, it was really it was great to sort of layer these in a systems framework and go, you know, these are the physical environmental changes we can make to ensure that we can, you know, support para-athletes. Yeah. And they're quite simple possible changes to make. And are they po changes that you think need to be made at a local level or at a government policy level? Like do you think the US is a little bit more, I guess, user-friendly or do you think it it's you know, across the world that there's still a lag between really understanding how to support para-athlete at a, at a systems level, at a structural level? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, so for the US, it, it's hard because of um, my view, my perspective and, and also what I looked at within the collegiate system and I think that the collegiate system is doing such a great job. So, mm -hmm. like, so... From that perspective, it was definitely, um, you know, compared to Australia, the collegiate athletes 
had had you know access to wheelchairs. They had access to store their wheelchairs on site, which mm. was something the Australian athletes talked. Some of them talked to as a barrier, like you have to take your wheelchair in, you know, take it back to the car if you're going then to university lectures straight after. It's such a time factor yeah. how long it takes. And and where I went to where I went to university, um, speaking from experience, it was it, it was so. It was so far advanced for accessibility that I think it showed me what is possible. But it, but I think the rest of the world, like we can definitely do, we can learn from that. Having there were there was adaptive equipment. Like I think you've been to the University of Illinois gym. Yes, where they several, train there. several several times. And I've got to say, I mean, the University of Illinois was deliberately set up to be uh, an accessible university. So yeah. it is a quite a unique. I guess center from from that perspective because there was thought put into every every building and every component of of the university to make it more accessible. So I and it's interesting because it's I yeah I understand what you mean by that collegiate system in the US is set up better in terms of the the accessibility and the, and maybe the access to equipment and yet it's in universities in uh, the US actually don't get much other support in terms of they don't get access to a lot of the nutrition support and the medical yeah. support and and the and and other support mechanisms that the able-bodied athletes get so there's still a difference but I I totally get what you mean in terms of that just that systematic ability to actually you know be able to play basketball and they have a great intercollegiate basketball program yeah that's it and I think it's that we still have barriers like yeah. all, and, and I guess we we'll always you know all, all sport programs will um they're just they're maybe different depending mm-hmm. on what what you have access to like in Australia I found and it, I found this in my time as an athlete we were we, we were getting a lot of parity in terms of our support structures to what Olympic and able-bodied athletes were also having access to um as categorized athletes but it was that that our you know our needs in terms of our venues to train on were different, and venues across the board in Australia are not you know are not at that universal access mm. um, state yet. So yeah, it was different. Mm, interesting. Wow. And so, can you see changes that are being made now from some of the work that you did? Um, I did. So we definitely saw changes at USC, which was probably the most exciting part of the research was that we we then had a parallel or it, it started towards the end of my PhD, but we had a program in place to specifically support para-student athletes. Mm. Um, and we were able to embed some of the, some of this recommendations and like simple things like uh, wheelchair storage on campus we were because we were then working directly with USC sport they made that happen for us and Mm. and it was it was simple things that then made a big difference to the athletes it we weren't able to but you know replicate what they have in the US because there's no competition here intercollegiate competition for wheelchair basketball or para sports but it's something that I think could happen in the future uh, but it will just be, you know, we're a completely different sports system. But this, the support structures we put in place were then embedded within the high-performance student-athlete program at the university. And what, what I learned from that is that 
if we start with para sport and we start with thinking about what para athletes need and then we design you know an inclusive sport system we it's already accessible and it's already mm. thinking about what athletes with higher support needs may need and I think that could be a really good lesson for high performance sport in general I'm, I'm not saying we're the only ones to do that Paralympics Australia do, do um, have a lot of innovation in the para sport space that can be used across across all of sport I, I work pretty closely with Dr Ross Pinder and mm. and we have these conversations all the time but I think you know more and more we we talk about it we're like oh well if we think about what para athletes need we can then roll that out to everyone but then we're not going back going oh how do we make this venue accessible because it was already accessible in the first place yeah yeah brilliant well that's exciting for the future for sure so were invited to be an athlete rep on the successful 2032 olympic paralympic bid from brisbane how was that experience for you oh that experience the experience was amazing i've you know, often, often spoke about how when I did retire from sport, especially because I, you know, had I, I just kept, kept studying, I sort of slowly drifted away from wheelchair basketball as a player and then um, have been involved in wheelchair basketball in other ways up here on the Sunshine Coast. So it was really unexpected to then have an experience like that bid process when Paralympics Australia came to me about it. I was, I was yeah, blown away and um, didn't really know what to expect. It was very different to anything I've been a part of before and it it was just incredible being in the meetings and sort of talking, you know, it was my role to talk about the Paralympic movement and what that would mean for hosting the Games here in 2032 and it it just really made me think about what it could mean not just for for our Paralympic athletes who will compete then and beyond but for all of people or everyone with a disability in Australia. Mm. What kind of opportunities can come from it so it was it was yeah it was really surreal being a part of that are you still involved now that it now that we've got the bid and they're moving into the implementation phase yeah I've been involved in different ways so I've I've become a board member on um, the Queensland Academy of Sport which is a fair yeah that's been fantastic especially considering QAS just had such a such an impact on me as an athlete and then also my time studying so that's exciting as we you know prepare for 2032 and, and what QAS role will be in that and then I've, I've recently been appointed as the chairperson of a legacy group here on the Sunshine Coast to report back to the Sunshine Coast Council about what some of the priorities are that we need to be planning for now so nice. that's that's been a, um, a very exciting appointment because it will involve working with 13 other community members about thinking about what we what we want this games to be and mm. and you don't get many opportunities like that no. as a region so to go in, one, once in a lifetime yeah yeah, yeah. so so we, um there are a couple of things that have popped up as a result of 2032 and it's 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 just really exciting what I think we can what we can do and I guess why I'm passionate about it is that if we can think about inclusivity from the outset, we don't have to adapt anything. We'll just build things that are accessible for people to use and we'll make sport so much more accessible for the 500,000 people that Paralympics Australia have said that they want playing sport as a result of the Games. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Fantastic. No, No comeback 
in the pipeline? <laughs> no, none on, none on the horizon. And <laughs> that's hard because, like, I really miss, oh, I really miss competitive wheelchair basketball. But luckily, I just love competing. And for me, playing at that, playing sport at the social level, I can, you know, <laughs> I can yeah. get a bit of a fix. Um, <laughs> so I think a comeback in terms of I'm not playing as much basketball as I would like to be. Um, at the moment but as soon as our national league competition starts back up again and we can travel oh, I can't, cannot wait to play I definitely won't be as you know fast or as, <laughs> I don't know that I was ever that accurate at shooting actually so maybe maybe it'll be the same but it, I think it's just important to play and that's what I miss the most of the game yeah. so I'll definitely be making a comeback to the games but yeah. not not at that level. <laughs> cool so, Bridie, do you have any recommendations for coaches and practitioners who are working with para-athletes, whether they're you know, physiologists or biomechanists or sports dietitians, any, anything that in particular in terms of words of advice for them? Yeah, I think, um, I think there's sort of two things that, that relate. It's that thinking inevitably about Paralympic sport is, is something that, you know, it's it's about thinking outside the box and sometimes I think there's there's hesitancy or there's, you know, we don't want to do things that are risky. But when I think about Illinois, this, the, the stairway, like for an exercise scientist, this the stairway that they built, so they built a stairway in their gym and then had like a, um, a harness from the wall and we used to walk up and down it on our arms. As a, as a conditioning uh-huh. exercise up yep. and down while harnessed in. And it was such a cool, innovative way to train. And that's what we want as para-athletes. Like we want to push boundaries and we want to be pushed to our limits when we're at that high performance level. So so not being afraid to think a bit outside the box. And that I, that I just think we can all learn from Paralympic sport. Like working with Ross and Paralympics Australia, I get really excited about what can be done when we think about what para-athletes do to become the best they can be. And I think we can actually learn for all of our performance sports. So the more we can think about para-athletes first, I think the more we will actually benefit as, you know, an all-of-sport approach. Yeah, fantastic. And what about any potential or current athletes? Any recommendations for them? Um, I think... Well, if I look back on my career, I think what I regret or if I, I, you know, you're striving for excellence so much that sometimes we're hard on ourselves when, we, when we're working towards a goal. But I think just trying to really enjoy that process because getting better and working towards those goals should be enjoyable. And I think back to the times where I put so much stress on the outcome that yeah. I forgot to enjoy the process, process of like what it's like to be in the gym and be, you know, getting stronger every week or to be like with the nutrition, learning about something that will be then a lifetime skill that you have to be able to know how to feel your body to make yourself feel good. So I think just to enjoy it as much as possible, that's probably my only regret in how seriously I took some of the, the outcomes of sport and that puts pressure on, on the process when the when if you let the process take care of itself, mm. the outcome will happen. We can't force an outcome. Yeah. We can just do what we can and in the you process. Can, you, you can't control other people and other variables outside of the, the effort and, and the work that you put in. So I think, you know, that 
elite sport and and any sport i think you know if you if you focus on the outcome it's something that isn't always under your control and so it can be fraught with disappointment whereas you can control every aspect of the process and yeah i think that's something that it's the process that gets you the outcome in the end so staying focused on that side of things really help to be able to see a better perspective that's it that's it and and i think we focus on the process but we also should enjoy the process because that's the process of actually getting you know fitter stronger Mm. closer to our potential and that's all we can really ask for in sport yeah absolutely and in and in life yeah that that's it Mm. okay bridie uh last question for you what's your favorite food oh my favorite food it's definitely chocolate i think (laughs) i think fortunately i've converted myself from like a you know dairy milk top deck favorite to like i love the 90 percent rims i i uh-huh. i cannot live without it and i'm pretty sure when chris and i take groceries and buy it people think we're panic buying chocolate and like <laughs> that's actually just how much we eat in a week or two so that's my absolute favorite food is 90 percent lint and um, and what about your daughter is is she converted as well do you know she has actually i, I think because she sees me eating it so often when she's had her first exposure to chocolate, I think was like at the dark, the dark chocolate. And I was like, oh, maybe we should just, hopefully this is what she thinks chocolate is and she doesn't get a, get a taste of the, know, sweet, the, the, the lower the cocoa stuff. stuff. Yeah. yeah, so she's she does she does like chocolate, but we have to be a bit careful of that because it is very messy when she gets a piece of <laughs> chocolate and walks around the house. So we try to avoid it, eat it while she's sleeping. Cool. Well, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts, Bridie. You've had such a breadth of experience, both as an athlete and also as a researcher. And and from a a practical perspective, I think you've got some amazing insights. I appreciate you giving us a little snapshot of that today. Oh, thanks, Liz. And I appreciate what you've put together and, um, and what I've learned from you in the process. So it sticks with me, the veggies. (laughs) every day (laughs) so it it, it, um, definitely stays with me long before beyond sport (laughs) cool and yeah I look forward to seeing what comes out of some of the some more of the work that you've put in in terms of the accessibility component and and the equipment side of things I think it's so crucial thanks yeah it's going to be an exciting 10 years I think for, for all of us for sure okay great Thanks. Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to Bridie and hearing about all the different experiences she's had, both of us said, an athlete and a researcher and a leader in parasport. What I found really interesting is how she describes her shift from being concerned around eating too much for her body composition to realising that food is a source of fuel and if she fuels herself well then her body composition will look after itself and really the fueling is important for getting through all of the training and really enjoying her training rather than finding that to be a a bad experience. That leads us on to our podcast for next week which is with Brooke Lamphair who is a sports psychologist and has recently completed her PhD in the area of body image in para-athletes or 
people with disabilities. So hopefully you'll join us next week. In the meantime, I hope you're enjoying the podcast. As usual, please leave us a message if you have any comments or any suggestions on topics or people you'd like to hear from. And please feel free to share it with your social media.